Father in heaven, thank you so much for this uh, beautiful day and the blessing of your presence as we've been meeting together. We thank you for the encouragement that we received, but also, Lord, for the conviction as the Word of God and the counsels of your Spirit have been speaking to our hearts. Pray now that as we take time to talk about the work of public evangelism this afternoon, that you would bless us with insight and wisdom and help us to know how to implement what we learn back home. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to answer some questions, and I'm just going to make sure before I dive into this that we refresh our memories. Really what we believe in is comprehensive evangelism. Okay? What's that? Yeah, that, that would make a big difference. Mm. There we go. You hear it now? It might need to be... Uh, there it is. <clears throat> um, we believe in comprehensive evangelism, which means that public evangelism is part of a whole. And it does a lot of things. Um, but the primary thing that we speak of when we talk about public evangelism is the harvest. Because a public evangelistic series that has uh, meetings in close proximity to one another, so people are coming out night after night, has the ability to gain decisions and bring conviction uh, unlike just about anything else. And so because of that, um, we refer to it as the harvest, but it doesn't only harvest. Or as Pastor Troy was just referred to, the as the pressure mm -hmm. Right. Because of the nature of, of those so many meetings so often, you'll see that people will tend to make decisions faster in the setting. Absolutely. And, and yet it also does some planting because some people are coming for the first time. Does some cultivating because it is covers the topics that you would in a series of Bible studies. But its primary purpose is harvesting. So um, just wanted to make sure we understand when we're talking about public meetings that this is not evangelism uh, in its entirety, but we're talking about an important element of the comprehensive evangelistic process. So let's. what I want to do is look at some questions here, and I'm going to share some things. Mark will weigh in uh, wherever he deems appropriate as well. And then if you have questions after we cover these, at any time you can raise your hand. Um, you did not ask these questions or submit these questions, but we have heard these questions lots and lots of times. And so we are just bringing you what are commonly asked issues that people have with public evangelism. So the first one that is up here is, isn't the church too focused on evangelism? And Mark made a point there in the beginning that what happens when something doesn't work is that the local church stops doing it and therefore it suffers. I would venture to say that a church that stops doing public evangelism is nine times out of ten a church that begins to die. And I'm just, you know, we, we can say, oh, well, we're going to do this instead and that instead. But what generally happens is that church does not see uh, an interest growth. It doesn't see activity. It has very little going on, and it soon dies. Public evangelism itself has more uh, impact than just the event itself. It has the impact of 
of being a uh, motivator for everything else that happens in the church because you build everything around this harvest event. So it kind of drives other things to happen as well. So when you're not doing it, you find that other ministries actually also begin to suffer. And, and people just kind of, well, we don't have that coming. You know, there's nothing pressing. And so they don't really do much. And before long, uh, they're not doing anything at all. Right. If you consider the agricultural cycle, as much as you can't have anything without soil preparation, you can't have anything without seed sowing, yeah, if you talk to any farmer, his focal point is the harvest. It's not preservation of the harvest. It's not any other cycle like the harvest. Nothing gets the focus like the harvest. And even in Christ's own words, he doesn't didn't say the um, cultivation is plentiful. The laborers are few. He didn't say the seed sowers. It was the harvest. And, and over and over, we see that that emphasis and. That's not by accident. Mm -hmm. In the same way, the heart, because that's where we see the, that person committing their life to Jesus Christ. And that's why we want to be thorough in the other areas. I saw him. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a little bit beside the point, but this is for the church members on having evangelistic meetings every year. My wife is a walking, talking concordance, and she says it's because her dad always made sure they went to an evangelist <laughs> every year. Yeah. There you go. It's really important for us, too. Mm, mm. Very true. Well, let's not forget that it's also our uh, reason for our organization. Acts of the Apostles, page 9, says the church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for service, and its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. So keeping that in front of us, we need to remember, you know, Evangelism is not just something that we do. It is, in essence, our purpose for existence. It's, it's the reason that we're organized. Um, and a couple other quotes that I think are very uh, valuable for somebody who's struggling with this. This one I shared just from memory, but I may not have quoted it exactly right, the other day from Christian Service, page 79. We have no time to lose. The end is near. We must look our work fairly in the face and advance as fast as possible in aggressive warfare. That is an incredible statement to me. Um, we've got to advance how? As fast as possible. I mean, there's just no uh, way that that could be interpreted other than evangelistically we have to advance as fast as possible. And one more from Christian Service, page 262. In proportion to the enthusiasm and perseverance with which the work is carried forward will be... Who thinks they know? <laughs> Pastor Mark knows. In proportion to the enthusiasm and perseverance with which the work is carried forward will be the success given. Think about that. In proportion to the Enthusiasm, that means staying what? Hopeful, energetic, uh, positive, excited even, in proportion to the enthusiasm and the what? Perseverance. What is perseverance? Diligence under what? Opposition. Difficulty. No results. 
Right? I mean, you need to persevere. You don't need to persevere. What do you need to do something easy? Right. The implication is it's something that you're going to face obstacles with, challenges. And it's not going to just automatically bring results. So the idea is, in order to have results, we have to get through periods of no results and still press forward positively, hopefully, with enthusiasm. That, in proportion to those things, will be the success given. So we need yeah. to not ever give up. I need to add that in my first pastoral district here in Michigan, uh, we did an evangelistic meeting every year. And the first year, I had two baptisms, I believe, in the whole year. The second year, I had three baptisms, doing the same thing. And in the third year, I had 17 baptisms from years one, two, and three, because we just kept on working. And there were people who came to year two and year three, they just been part of the meeting. They'd been through some Bible studies and they weren't ready to commit. And so when I get into churches, I've been in churches, I come into pastor day, I've had a meeting four years, six years, whenever the conference last told them they had to, and, and then they wonder why they're not seeing the success, but you have to continue and, and like it's already been said, that doesn't, that's just, I'm not talking about the effect it only has on the people you're working with. But that has a profound effect on the church and their mission focus. Absolutely. Okay, let's ask another question. Isn't true evangelism a lifestyle? Well, let me, I, I didn't hear you necessarily. I heard you talk about evangelism. I didn't know that we hit that so much. Because what I was listening for was, and I didn't hear you state it, a lot of times the way it comes out is, why don't we focus more on nurture? I mean, we need help too. We're always talking about reaching outside the church, but we got needs inside the church. Mm -hmm. And... What I'm, I'm afraid too many Seventh-day Adventists have forgotten, if, if they ever knew it at all, but inspiration is very clear on this, is the very best way to nurture the church is outreach. And Cameron started to quote a statement the other day, in fact, you shared it yesterday, um, in Christian service, where Illinois says that, she says, let ministers teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, so let's pause. What does the word nurture mean? Name, give me, name, name me two things you nurture. Babies and? I heard them both. Plants and babies are always the first two. And what does it mean to nurture a baby? What does it mean to nurture a plant? To help them grow. That's what nurture means. So listen to the statement again. Let ministers teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, you need to huddle and hover over each other and encourage one another. That's not what it says. In order to grow in spirituality, that they must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon them. The burden of leading souls into the truth. There's another statement in Testimonies for Ministers and Gospel Workers that says that the members will not receive one tithe of the strength that they would receive if they go out and use their energy in seeking lost souls. And so we think if we're just going to focus on ourselves and navel gaze for a while, somehow we're going to fix the problems. In fact, I wish they had stayed in front of me where Ellen went in another place. She says that, uh, that the Lord has not given the minister the work of setting the churches right. She says, no sooner is this work done, comma, apparently, comma, then it has to be done again. And if you focus on fixing your church before you win souls, let me just make something plain. The devil's going to make sure it's never fixed. 
One of the best cures for the church is just getting out and getting outside of yourselves and working on soul winning. So it's a, it's a, the whole thing is a, is a straw man. This, oh, inreach versus outreach. When you have a burden for souls, you're not going to be like, oh, wait a minute, are you on our books? Are you not on our books? Our churchmen? You will labor for souls across the board and it will be beneficial to everybody. Amen. I think one of the mistakes that people make is thinking that we've, been focused too much on evangelism when our actual problem is not enough pace in evangelism. We do not come even close to the type of pace and activity that we should be having. It should be humming. And that we should have, the churches should have active, ongoing ministries that are humming. And, and you know, when you're, when you're looking at it as a, as a, you know, drudgery and it never works and what have you, you tend to just kind of not put your heart into it. And then you feel like, oh, do we need to do this again? But... And then you lack enthusiasm. Exactly. So, so it's actually the opposite of what most of us think. There needs to be greater pace. And if you were really to look at where Ellen White saw places where they were really doing what God intended them, there was a great pace. A beehive of activity, she called it. So we... We obviously can't burn everybody out, but if you work smart, you can have active, ongoing ministries in every phase of the evangelistic process going at any given point in time. And now I want to talk about lifestyle. You've heard it said that evangelism is not an event, it's a lifestyle. Um, the problem with making that a definitive statement is that you, you need more to be evangelistic than water cooler evangelism. You have to have actual planning, actual organization, and that doesn't happen just naturally. Okay? So, so let me go in and begin. So, so what, what you're saying is when people are saying evangelism is a lifestyle, which it is, mm -hmm. they're thinking just being friendly. Yeah. A lifestyle of being kind and friendly. When people see I'm friendly, then they'll know, they'll see that, and they'll know that I'm a Christian. Well, newsflash for you. Buddhists are kind and friendly. Atheists are kind and friendly. There's nothing that tells anybody you're kind and friendly. This came from your Christianity. If you never said anything about it, honestly. And it so, could be include. Not that we shouldn't be kind and friendly. It can include more than kind and friendly. It can include uh, organic conversations about spiritual things and talking to people about God and the Bible and what have you. But if that is the extent of your evangelistic effort as a church, you will not win souls. You've got to have planned, organized methods. So what we've done is we have so said that we focus too much on events and methods and we, we don't let the Holy Spirit work. That has become so, so much of a mantra that some people have lost the uh, value of organized events and being very, having very clearly laid plans. Um, one of my statements here is from Education 262, where Ellen White says, success in any line demands a definite aim. He who would achieve true success in life must keep steadily in view the aim worthy of his endeavor. Such an aim is set before the youth of today. The heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. It opens a field of effort to everyone whose heart Christ has touched. So it's 
our evangelism can't be aimless. It must have a definite aim. We must have a definite purpose and goal. One of my other favorite statements that she says is that every church member should devote time to winning souls for Christ. Well, how do you devote time? Time talking to your coworker is not time that you devoted. Right? What, do you, what does it mean when you say you devote time? You set it aside when? Ahead of time. So in other words, we are to plan ahead of time for evangelistic effort. Not just as it happens in our life. So yes, we should be doing evangeliving. And you know, our, our life should be an evangelistic endeavor. But that is not all it means to be evangelistic. Public evangelism is one of those things that must be thought out ahead of time. It must be coordinated. It must be organized. And that is in the plan of God that we plan ahead for uh, evangelistic effort. So we need intentionality because evangelism doesn't just happen. By the way, organic doesn't mean just haphazard. Organic means organized, organized. And that is one of the things that we fail to do in our churches. If you look at many of our evangelistic meetings, they are haphazard affairs. They are actually kind of bungled together and we hope everything works out. And we do not have a carefully laid out plan that the meetings themselves are a part of. And that is one of the reasons that we suffer so much in our success or our lack of success in evangelistic campaigns. So yes, evangelism is a lifestyle, but it's more than that. How often should we do evangelism? What do you think? All the time. Okay, absolutely. So the question almost implies that evangelism is only an event. Okay, So on the one side, you have the person who thinks that evangelism is just, you know, the, the organic things that come up in my day-to-day -day routine. And on the other side, you have people who think evangelism is only events. And we have shown, I think, enough that there is a process in evangelism. And you need events, but you also need an ongoing process. Evangelism is something that is ongoing. Everything, uh, in fact, I would even go so far as to say, you need to not just build your calendar in a way so that when you get to the end of evangelistic meeting, you baptize certain people and then you start all over again. You should always have people who are in every stage of development. Some of them you just met. Some of them you've been studying with for some. Some of them are ready to be baptized. You've, you've got a whole queue that is always being filled with different people. That's the only way that you have continued sustainable growth. Otherwise, you start all over in the beginning and it's slow moving. So that's the importance of having ongoing ministries. So one of the emphasis, uh, points of emphasis in pastoral ministry uh, for success is if I have, first of all, I need to know who my interests are across the board. I need to know, we talked about this the other day, categorizing interests into A, B, and C interests. Those who are very interested in making changes, those who we see an interest in, but they're not as invested yet, and then those who uh, really just aren't prioritizing. So, for example, in an evangelistic meeting, they may be coming to a meeting here or there, but it's not a priority of theirs. 
But when you take your interest and, and you understand them that way, part of reviewing your interests is to, is to ask yourself, how am I going to take my C interests and move them to a B interest? How am I going to get my B interests and move them to A interests? How am I going to get those A interests, interests to, become, to be baptized and begin the discipleship process? And so that's what you're talking about. You're mm-hmm. not just looking at the ones getting baptized. You're looking at that whole queue of interests and wanting to understand what it's going to take to move the work. So, so it's just trying to make it clear that public evangelism in terms of the meetings themselves are not the definition of evangelism. We need to be clear about that. Having said that, public evangelistic meetings, I think we should do at least once a year. And when I would be in a district with two churches, um, I would do spring and fall, so I could try to be involved in coaching and what have you in both of them. Um, but some churches, like, how many of you know Bill McClendon? You know him because he was out west. Um, but Bill McClendon was down in South Tulsa, and the churches were growing, or his church was growing very fast. And then he went out for a while out west, and then he came out and was pastoring in, uh, where, near where I live in Maryland, uh, in Ellicott City. And everywhere he's gone, his churches have grown significantly. And let me give you a little insight into what I think is the primary reason. He does some unique things, but, um, but there's one thing he does that I think really is very clearly a way to grow your church. He has at least four evangelistic meetings a year. So when he was in South Tulsa, he would have six a year. But he slowed down. You know, you get older, you can't keep up. Um, and he only did one a quarter. And he had the church members that they didn't always, they weren't always working the evangelistic meetings, but different ones would be plugged into different meetings. But they, every quarter, had this going. And, um, you know, there were some aspects of what he did. I wouldn't necessarily do the same. And I think, in terms of, uh, of standards for baptism, maybe they weren't exactly where I would put those standards or preparation was not quite as thorough as I might do. But there was no question that this growth was meaningful growth. And it was because he was very active um, and deliberate. So remember when I said pace. We just, you know, we move at a pace and we get what we work for. You know, I mean, exactly. So it's it's very much the case that if you do ramp it up, you will have more growth. You know, it comes at a cost, but that is what will happen. So that's a very real answer to how we, often should we do. I think at least once a year. Churches that get worn out from doing it once a year, I don't know what to say. I mean, I understand that it's a, it's a busy time of the year, but, you know, it's not, you know, torturous. It's just a focus. It's focus. I think it's important to note, though, that any any enterprise that you get in is going to have that. I mean, every corporation, at least for the accountants, gets busy once a year. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just part of... And so, with a church, the way some of our churches plan and run things, if you try to run a corporation that way, it wouldn't last a year. And we're, this is the work of God, and I think we really need to understand and, and apply ourselves to the process like yeah. that. Yeah. There are going to be there are times when you're busier than others, 
but there's got to be consistent thinking and planning mm -hmm. uh, and not treating it like it's uh, some you know, back burner. And I think success helps. So I understand that churches who feel like it hasn't been resulting in much become more discouraged. But that's no reason to not do it. When you know for, we know for a fact that all over it is still successful. And I don't know how you measure success, but souls baptized into the church as a result of meetings, regardless of the number, is success. And I believe that some years are good years, some years not so good, but your, your purpose should not be thinking of you know, just not doing it, but thinking of how to do it better. How, how can we make sure that this is better? How can we make sure we have greater results? And each year you're improving on what you're doing. Let's say someone goes through a series of evangelistic meetings and they're there every night for three weeks. Three weeks, if you go five nights a week, is 15 nights. In order to learn everything you need to to make a, an intelligent decision about both doctrinal and practical commitments of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist, 15 nights is not enough. So you would have to have maybe a five or six week meeting. And even if you did that and you had decisions for baptism, you would still meet with that individual and you would walk through the entire message and make sure they understood the commitment they were making. And that would involve all the things that they didn't understand when they made that statement, such as you know, you're becoming a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. After this process, we're going to continue studying and we're going to have a discipleship process and we're going to get you integrated into the church because we believe that everyone who becomes a member is a soul winner and they're going to be actively engaged as well. And that would be all part of the preparation process for baptism. They would have no thought to saying, oh, I'm just going to go back to my church because we would have already made very clear that this is a much bigger thing than that. So that just tells me that somebody was... Uh, moving too hastily in the baptism process. Yeah, I think part of the reason for that is I think that we tend to read almost critically, or we can, success. And so we've got to have, and whoever it is felt like, well, I've got to get these baptisms done so everybody says it wasn't a failure, or it doesn't really do a lot of good with it. So I go back to the example I gave you my first year in my first district here. Two baptisms, the next year three baptisms, we did this big meeting. Okay? And people were complaining, like, oh, no, it's two people. And then the third year, 17. Now nobody's complaining anymore. But I'm telling you that the 17 came from year number one when we just had two baptisms. We had others, like the ones you're talking about, we didn't baptize them yet. But they kept coming to church, we kept studying with them, and we continued to cycle them through. And so I think it's important that we as churches realize and not sometimes we get pressure in that direction and say, well, we only got so many baptisms as if that's the only measure of success in the meeting. And uh, it's just not. That's right. Okay, I'm going to give you another common one. Shouldn't we focus more on Jesus and less on doctrine or less on prophecy? Um, you know... It's interesting to me that as a church that we could possibly be confused about this <clears throat> and, and think that these two things are separate in, in any way. Now, I'm not saying that it is not possible for someone 
to give a, a Christless uh, presentation. Elamite spoke very plainly during the late 1800s about those who had preached the law until uh, they were as dry as the hills of Gilboa. And what she said as a response was that we should preach what? Does anybody know? Christ in the law. And what, what many people today, such as the One Project uh, within Adventism have done, is focus as if what she said was we should preach Christ. But she said we should preach Christ in the law. Because Christ is who gives meaning to everything that we believe. And there's a statement I want to share on this, especially as it relates to doctrine, because it really dispels the myth. Um, this is Selection Messages, Book 2, page 87. The truth for this time is broad in its outlines, far-reaching, embracing many doctrines. But these doctrines are not detached items which mean little. They are united by golden threads forming a complete whole with Christ as the living center. So the doctrines are not detached. They're, they're tied together and Christ is the living center. What that means is we don't have to make Christ the center of our doctrines. He's already the center of our doctrines. We actually have to try in order to not have Christ bring meaning into the doctrine. We actually have to make an effort because Christ is always part. Think of any doctrine that we have and, 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 and tell me a doctrine that we have that you think it's very easy for us to not present Christ as the living center. Let's think about an evangelistic series for a minute. What, what might you start with? Daniel 2. What's the focal point of Daniel 2? The coming of Jesus, right? I mean, the, the stone comes at the very end and we're looking forward to the coming of Christ and we're living in the very end of time just before Jesus will come. These prophecies are all true and therefore we can trust the Bible and the promises that have been made there. So you have right at the forefront of Daniel 2 the picture of the grand consummation of the coming of Christ. Then you might have something on the great controversy. Well, what's the focus of the great controversy? You know, the issue of the love of God and Christ versus Satan and the, and the battle that wages between good and evil. And then you come into probably something like salvation. Not too hard to find Christ in the center of that, right? Okay, then you come into something like the law. Well, what do we say about the law? We say that the law is still the will of God for Christians. But we also say that the law cannot save you. The law points out our sin and leads us to Christ for salvation. And then we tell them about the Sabbath, which is not the Sabbath of the Jews, but it's the Sabbath of Jesus Christ because He's the Creator. He is the Savior. And the Sabbath is a monument of those things. And, he, and because Jesus kept the Sabbath, we follow the example of Jesus. And He says, if you love Me, Keep my commandments. Our entire meetings, if you were really, you know, just slice away all of what some people, their, you know, uh, complaints, and you actually go to a series of meetings and listen and to what's being presented, you're going to find that Christ is already at the center of what we believe and teach. 
I'm not saying it's not possible to improve by always making sure to emphasize the relation of that doctrine to the plan of salvation. But that being the case, uh, it's kind of inherent in everything that we teach and believe. And you could keep going, you know, the judgment, the second coming, uh, you know, as we go through the whole process, even the Antichrist, we end up talking about, in essence, the counterfeit to Christ. And, you know, tradition versus being faithful to God and to the will of God. The other thing, and Cameron has pointed this out uh, in a couple of our meetings pretty faithfully, we get weird about focusing on Jesus and not God. Like, if you talk about God, it's okay, but you really need to talk about Jesus because that we need to be Jesus-focused. As if that is going to represent something much better to the world than focusing on God. We kind of almost create a division that we shouldn't be there. So we need to recognize that we really have a beautiful message. And it does not need you know, us to be artificially manufacturing something in order to uh, you know, get people to, to see Jesus in it, because he's already there. And, and one other point on this, and then I'm sure Mark wants to comment too. But I believe that the biggest and most important thing you can do to keep Christ at the center of any message that we give in an evangelistic meeting or otherwise is just your own conversion. Because when, when a speaker, when, a, when a, somebody who's sharing the Bible with somebody has an experience with Christ, it's going to be the natural thing for them to appeal to people to have that same experience. It's a genuine uh, outgrowth of being a Christian. So this is not uh, as complicated or mechanical as we like to make it sometimes, making sure we have the slides you know, full of pictures of Jesus and we say Jesus 12 times and whatever. It, it's not how you do it. It's just having a genuine experience with God and that will come out and it's built into every doctrine that we believe. Did you have anything to add to that? A lot to be comes to my mind is what Pastor Richard Bill used to say. A lot of times when people say we should focus more on Jesus and less on God, and what they mean is we, we, we prefer Baptist doctrine to Adventist doctrine. And mm -hmm. I'm not being funny. That's, that's the reality. I've run into that many places. There are a lot of Adventists who really feel uncomfortable about Adventist doctrine, and I think people have a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that they haven't been, and you touched on that a little bit. I'm sure that there have been. I've heard presentations, what have you, that could have been better folks, that could have been more mechanical. But uh, I like what you said at the end there, and I think it goes both ways, because there's been this push in recent years to even write sermons and write lessons and so that you just couldn't present it any other way you want to make it Jesus-focused. But I think it needs to be understood very clearly that if you're not converted, there's not a thing you can present. I don't care how it's written. It is not going to be Jesus focused. How can you present Jesus focused if you are not committed to Christ? If you are, it's going to be Jesus focused. You're going to take, even if it was the driest thing in the world, guess mm -hmm. what? When you get done with it, it's going to be different because it's in your heart. And it's really an issue of conversion. Yeah. Um, Amen. Well, what about prophecy? I like it. <laughs> Um, I, I will tell you from, I shared this a little bit this morning in, in my presentation. 
that when I came back into the church and my family had been out of the church, what really one of the things that intrigued me at 25 years old was prophecy. I wanted to know, I saw things happening in the world, I wasn't oblivious to it, even though worldly, secular-minded, what have you, I wanted to know something about the future. And uh, so somebody gave me the book, or recommended the book, Early Writings, and I really had issues with Ellen White, so it's just like, okay, great, I'm going to read this, Ellen White, but I was intrigued because it said these, this book contains some of her early visions about the end of time. And anyway, I admit it, and I was hooked. Uh, but what I've come to understand in all prophecy is, and we share this in evangelism, Isaiah 46, 9, 10, the Lord says the one thing that sets him apart, I, the Lord, declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Um, and so, then he, when you look that up in Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, he the Lord is setting that out as, I mean, I imagine God can say a whole lot of things that make him different from the gods of the nation. But the thing he chooses to pick is prophecy. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus talks to his disciples, he says, I'm telling you what's going to happen because when it comes to pass, you'll know that I'm me. And I've shared before that prophecy is one of those, when I first became a Christian, I had people say, oh, that's Christianity, it's just a bunch of blind faith, you just believe anything somebody tells you. But what I found is, God never asks us to believe without evidence. And one of the strongest evidences he has chosen to give is prophecy. And there's something that happens when a person, and I say this from pastoral experience, from giving Bible studies and sermons and what have you, when I preach Daniel 2, and people see Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, let me tell you what they're not thinking. They're not thinking, wow, what cool world empires. That's not what they're thinking. I'll tell you what they're thinking. A chill runs up and down their spine and they say, there is a God who knows the future and who holds the destiny of all humanity in his hand. There's something that strikes you when, when you see fulfilled prophecy. It's like a divine hand taps you on the shoulder and you have an encounter with Jesus in, in ways that you can't any any other way. You can't just you can't detach Jesus from prophecy. And he intended that because you that's when you come from just it's cognitive information. There's just something when you sense that this is bigger than just there is a God who knows the future. That's right. And, the, and, and suddenly you see it on the corporate level, at the same time on a personal level, wow, he knows everything. He knows my future. He knows what's going on in my life. And, when the text says, when the text says that you may know that I am He, that word He is added, and He's saying that you may know that I am. He's talking about that you may know me not just as this carpenter from Nazareth, but that you'll know that I am the Son of God, that I know everything, that I hold everything in my hands. That's the power of prophecy. It brings us into contact with divinity, and that's what you need in order for conversion. So that's why, and the Bible needs to be seen as a divine book in order for people to be converted. That's why prophecy is so powerful. And if you really look at it, uh, Jesus, Ellen White says, uh, after quoting from Mark chapter 1, you know, Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, and that time is fulfilled is prophetic time. And she says, thus, when Jesus presented the Gospels, it was based on the prophecies. Or when he presented the Gospel, it was based on the prophecies. And then you look at the early church, and on, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, and he said, this Jesus, you know, the, the grave could not hold him. Why? Because in Psalm 16 it said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
He preached what he was preaching about Christ based on the prophecies. And then uh, she talks about Paul who preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. And she says basically the way he did that was by tracing them through the prophecies. If you read about that in Acts of the Apostles. So throughout, we see that God has always given the preaching of prophecy to bring out the divine uh, conviction in, in the heart of, of the fact that God knows something that you know, is beyond mere human possibility. Okay, here's what I want to do. We're going to have a pick your favorite question. Which one of these do you want? Um, okay, shouldn't we do personal evangelism instead? No, we should do both because Ellen White makes very clear that though personal evangelism, if you can only choose one, you should do personal. But if both are combined, she says, a more perfect and thorough work may be wrought. So we should do both. Does public evangelism even work anymore? Yes, it does. Does public evangelism cost too much? No, it doesn't. What if my church... Now this, does public evangelism cost too much? Um, yeah, if you are blowing your money not doing a meeting right, if you're, if you're not being careful and good stewards and making sure you do your meeting well so that you have as much success as possible, then yeah, anything is spending too much because you're wasting your money because you're not um, you know, well, caring for the process. That's, that's first of all too subjective. What? Which is too much. It's the price of the soul. It's the worth of the soul. I think a big problem we run into here is we start, sometimes we think evangelism or evangelistic outreach is supposed to have a return, a financial return, or somehow we're going to get our money back. Or, like, what did you say, widgets the other day? The corporation mm -hmm. makes widgets, and they're like, man, we're spending all this money on plastic or whatever else. It's just too much. You can't make widgets without the plastic. Your job is to make widgets. If our job is to win disciples, what's too much? To pay to be doing what we're supposed to do. Now you talk about extravagance, and that's a, a piece of it. And we could talk. I think part of this is going to be on advertising. And you know, the only the only thing about advertising is if you've done public evangelism or any kind of advertising for your church events, you know that the return isn't great. Uh, and I hear this in the church all the time. Growing rate is one to three per thousand of a handbill that we send out. But what I don't think a lot of Seventh-day Adventists realize is that Direct TV isn't doing any better. Art Band Furniture, for those of you who live here in Michigan, they send me stuff, I throw it in the trash. They send me stuff, I throw it in the trash. They send me stuff, and they keep sending me stuff. Why? Because somebody's not throwing it in the trash. That's just how, why do they keep doing it? Because that's how they keep going, and that's how they get, they have a worldly place is willing to do that. They're, oh, we're wasting our money. Let's not send this out anymore. They wouldn't be in business. And how much more for a church? We need to understand that one per thousand is the going rate. And incidentally, handbills isn't the only way we can advertise, but it's, from but, my standpoint, it's, it's the cost of doing business. But what often happens is if they, if they do the, the, the flyers and it's, they, they count that cost, then the next time they say, you know what, this time we're going to just do, we're going to be really aggressive in personal, we're going to pass them out. We're going to personally, in fact, they pass out, you know, 500 or something, and they get one person. Because whether you pass them out or you mail them, you're still going to generally get one per thousand. Okay? So you might not get anybody. If you pass it out to people you know. But the bottom line is, even with people you know, it's not a high percentage. 
So why would you take out the part, like I can, if I go and do a meeting, I can have 40 to 50,000 handbills delivered and I can know that I'm going to get 40 to 50 guests on opening night. Why would I not want that? Like, the, the option is to not do it because we're just wanting to preserve that money and by preserving the money, we ensure that we only have a couple people there. They come for a couple nights, the members are discouraged, everybody just says this doesn't work anymore. I'm just saying that one per thousand can still produce a pretty good crowd. And there are some times if you have the right synergy where you can have more than that. I know, but I thought that you handled that to me. We had this personal ministries came up this week. Somebody asked a question about mailings and the effectiveness of Bible study offer. Mm -hmm. uh, handle yeah. cards, you know, mm -hmm. cards. And it was and I've gotten permission, so I use the church with the Jackson Church here in Michigan. And it was a person that was speaking, the lady was very frustrated. She said, you know, we sent out a mailing and we didn't get much back. And I said, well, how much did you send out? How much did you get back? And well, we sent out 4,000 cards and we only got four new Bible study entries. Well, I mean, it's on the lower end, but it's still in the expectation range, one per thousand. She said, but look, I get more I get more Bible studies when I would just ask people if they want Bible studies. <laughs> and I said, I've gotten nine just by going up and asking people if they want Bible studies. I said, well, Praise the Lord, right? So it's not an either-or thing. And clearly, the more personal make it, if you know the people, if you have a history with them, yeah. I've done the cycle of evangelism, you made friends, you want, that's going to increase the effectiveness. But one of the problems we have, I mean, this is a lot to come in here, but we're expecting the evangelistic campaign to be people's first introduction to the church, teach them knowledge of the church, we're ready to be baptized after the church, and we want to do it all without personal touch. We want to like send them all out there, pay this money, and I've invested in that, and that's going to result in... It's too mechanical in that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a cost of doing business with them, and high is a lower term, but you should factor that in. In addition, when both are combined, the more perfect work can be wrought. Uh -huh. And I think that we have all of these, this is the culmination of a lot of ideas that evangelism is a program, somebody else does it, our job is to pay for it, it's going to work in this short amount of time. All of these myths combine to make people think, oh, evangelism doesn't work anymore. Yeah. What you're doing isn't evangelism. Mm -hmm. It's something else. I don't know the term for it, but it's given evangelism a bad name. Mm -hmm. I would also ask the lady who got the nine Bible studies and not the four. I would ask, were any of those four ones that you got? Were any of the four that came in from the mailing the same ones of the nine that no, you got? Were 13 total. That's what the impression was. Yeah, which means yeah. that there are people that you will never get. Unless you do that mailing. That's right. So, so you're, you've got to do both. You've got to get, you've got the volume mass type of stuff and you've got as much. What I would tell churches is when I pastored, we need to distribute personal invitations as if we are not sending out a single handbill. And then we need to send out as many handbills as we can afford. <laughs> so you've got, to, you've got to do it both ways or else, you know, you, You've got to put your heart into meetings. One of the things that people do is do half-hearted meetings, and they end up seeing failure as a result. Okay, we had hands up over here. Actually, you're getting really good results with one in a thousand out in Seattle. That sounds that's just the way it is. Yeah. But and so it's costing us between over three thousand dollars per bathroom. But and evangelistic series of twenty to thirty thousand dollars. But if you just get a little eye surgery, it's going to cost you twenty to thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, just so you can see a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's be real. Yeah. What's Good 20 point. To $30, so true. If we get some people in, give them 
Amen. Exactly right. Okay, over here and then from the back. That's right. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. You know, something I want to add to that, too, about the great points there is that I've had this happen where you have, I mean, you're going to have that meeting anyway. And there's nothing worse than you have your opening night and the community guests don't come because you didn't mail out or whatever. I mean, you're still there. You're going to be there for everybody nights. You may as well pack the place, right? <laughs> uh, we had something like that come up recently, and it's just like, and it, sometimes it's even a training in a church or whatever, and it may not be cost factor, but if you're going to be somewhere and do something and make the presentations and go into go all out. Right. And then we're not talking about being extravagant, but it's not extra- extravagant to ad- advertise well. Like I said, I mean, you've got any worldly event, they're going to advertise it to pieces. They're going to use Facebook advertising and handbills and everything, and they're going to pay the money to do it because the event's already happened and they've got to get people there. Yeah. How much more when we're talking about the preaching of the gospel? And in the, in the next session, I'm going to get really practical about things you can do to get higher attendance and keep your attendance. But Mark just you know, mentioned something that made me think of when I went up to Alpena. And I went there, and as a pastor, when you go into an area, especially an evangelistic pastor, what you want with your first meeting is you want success because you know those members are all ready to tell you that we shouldn't do this, that this is a waste of money, that this won't work. I mean, the majority. I'm just being frank with you. And so you want to do it well. So I went up there and I said, hey, we need to start talking about what, what are your goals? What are your plans? What are your plans for building on to this church? What are like building on to the church? What do you mean? Building? Well, I mean, when we fill it up on down here, because there's not that much, we only have, you know, X number of room, and if we add this many per year, then we're going to need to, you know, so, and they're like, what are you talking about, you know, and so then I'm like, okay, so we're going to do these meetings this year, and uh, why don't we, where have you done them before, and I, I suggested we do them in a neutral hall, uh, well, we have Sabbath school classrooms here, and I said, well, you're going to get higher attendance at a neutral hall, so yes, you have the crossover, but anybody who maybe wouldn't cross over probably wouldn't have gone to your church in the first place anyway. So you're going to get higher attendance to start with, and you can build on that, et cetera. So, okay, Pastor. And so we did something at the Civic Center in Alpena, and I made sure we sent out a healthy number of handbills. I'm not going to skimp on the handbills. I want to make sure there's a crowd when those people show up. They knew how many we sent out, but they still didn't believe anybody was going to show up. I had my head elder, he rolled in the chairs and set them all up, and we had a little hall in the Civic Center, and he did like a third of the hall with chairs, and he left all the things. He said, we just need to leave it like that because, you know, you don't want it to feel empty, you know? I said, okay. So people start coming, and they start pouring in. Oh my goodness. He goes, and he gets the thing, and he starts wheeling it in and setting up more chairs, and the people are coming pouring. He filled the hall, and we filled the hall. Let me tell you something. When you do that in a meeting... The church members are like, whoa, I've never seen, you know, and it was, it was a blessing. We had eight baptisms that, that year, and this is little Alpina, and that meeting was a big part of the reason, and there were just little things that we did. 
like doing it in a neutral hall, sending out more handbills than they had previously sent out, having more pre-work than they had previously done, little, little things that they, because they didn't go halfway. See, I think when we, back when we had the satellite meetings, you remember the satellite meetings when we first started that? And we started doing it all in the churches and everybody said, oh, this is great. This is so convenient because we got our classrooms here, it didn't cost us any more money, etc. And what it ended up happening was we put a little hindrance for many people to go to a meeting because it's not a neutral place. And as a result, you know, and I'm not against doing them in churches. I, you know, I, I support it, but I wouldn't always do it in a church. I would rotate. I can. But I'm going to keep talking about it now. So you do not want to go into a meeting and, and have a lackluster experience because it ruins what everybody feels about it for the future. So why would you ever do anything but go all out? And I think that was uh, the point that Mark was making. I'm just giving you by way of illustration. Okay, we are to the end of our session, but we have one more. Uh, did you have a hand up too? Yes. You can wait. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and close for now, and I'll have some more practical tips on how to uh, have a successful meeting after the break. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for just being here in our midst and stirring up our pure minds. We know, Lord, that a lot of these questions are things that have rested in our hearts and in the hearts of our members, but we need to be uh, reminded of the real reason for the work that we do and of the fact that you have given us promises. You've promised that in proportion to the enthusiasm and the perseverance with which we work will be the success given. So please, Lord, give us enthusiasm, give us perseverance, and pour out your Spirit and bless our efforts with fruit from our labors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.